0: you are listening to the Palladium Park podcast. This show and our website palladiumpark.com are designed to improve thinking and communication skills. Your hosts are the co-founders of Palladium Park, Jenna Shaw and Colin Wheeler. Together, they explore the vastness of intellectual curiosities in the world. Like and subscribe to this show to never miss a new episode. Although we are consultants, we are not consulting you through this podcast. All information shared in this podcast is intended to be informative and entertaining in nature. When we make every effort to make sure topics discussed on this podcast are accurate, they may be incomplete or changing in nature. All views and opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Palladium Park. Hello and welcome to our show. We're talking about our November 2020 newsletter, our second one, all things Plady Park included. So from this, we're basically going to talk about a little bit of merchandise, what's from our blog, what we're exploring, what we're reading and what we're thinking. So with that, I think Colin's going to start us off with some merch.
1: Yeah. So a little bit of exciting news here. We have a uh, Redbubble store set up. And so basically it's uh branded apparel, all Palladium Park stuff. So some of it's our icon, the double P icon, and, and some of it is actual Palladium Park logo and a whole host of different items from actual clothing, shirts and hoodies and yoga pants and stuff like that to face masks and blankets and coffee cups, bags, coasters, thermoses, etc. So
0: anything your heart desires. It's beautiful and classy and elegant. (laughs) All for you.
1: Yep. I think it should be, if you're new to this or um, you don't really know what Plating Park is about, it's all about um, exploring intellectual curiosity, getting smarter every day, improving thinking and communicating communication skills. So that's kind of what this signifies. So like I said, whole host of options. It's on Redbubble, really good brand Redbubble for purchasing and then quality construction and uh, shipping times too. So overall, really happy with how the store turned out. And I hope that if you are so inclined and, and you like a bunch of the, this stuff, I hope that you do check it out because there are a lot of really good options.
0: Yeah. And send it to your friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So from Merch, next over podcast page and welcome. You're on the podcast. You found us. Well done. So here we are. <laughs> So I think that covers that, wouldn't you say? We're glad you Yeah.
1: And if you're confused, then I don't think we can help you. Yeah, agreed. All right. So then next page that we have there is what we posted on our blog recently, which is an overview on biases. And we actually just finished recording an episode on this. So at the time that you're listening to this, the biases podcast should be live as well. So if you prefer to listen rather than to read, that's another option for you.
0: Yeah, go check it out. So from our blog post now, we're talking about what we are exploring. So our first topic we uh, talked about on our newsletter was empathy, a big buzzword. A lot of people are talking about now. Colin and I talk about empathy a lot and how we're big fans of it. We think it's great. We I actually included, it's basically putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Start with the definition. That's what empathy is. And I also included, a, there's a great little YouTube video. It's like three minutes long that Brene Brown talks about what empathy is. And she really makes the distinction between sympathy and empathy. And it has a nice little animated visual that goes along with it. Um, so if you want an overview of that, that's in our newsletter to check that out. It's kind of a good read fresher. So from there, usually the, the thing that really got us talking about this was I listened to a podcast and then forced Colin to it's NPR's uh, Invisibilia and they there's one called The End of Empathy an episode from them. And it basically talks all about they are trying to hire a new journalist and they have her take interviews they did and make a story about it. And what she does, she's quite a bit younger than the original host, is makes them question empathy and whether it's always such a good thing. Because from their perspective, they, it's a tenet for how they do storytelling and trying to get inside someone's head and tell their stories and understand. And usually I think of that as a good thing too I think most people would agree and so it got me questioning as well and it's like they really come up um, into this idea that there is a dark side of empathy Uh, overall we end up I come to the conclusion I think they do too it's still a good overall a good thing but it's a good thing to understand that empathy does cost energy it's not our default it is difficult to can expend quite a bit of energy to put yourself in someone else's shoes especially someone that's very different from you or an adversary to you and the more different someone is the more difficult it can be that can also when that you drain yourself of that energy, it can uh, make it difficult to have energy left to fight the good fight for the things that you think are important. And also, they talked about studies of how basically, since the year 2000, and young people, and I think it was college-age kids, if I remember, it might have been high school, but I'm pretty sure it was college-age kids, and how there's a drastic decline in empathy. And they're kind of questioning the notion of like, well, why do I need to be empathetic towards people? And there's been a big decline, which I found that interesting, kind of how it, we know correlation is not causation, but it correlates a lot with the internet being invented and becoming into prominence. Now, that's a whole other of worms we'll explore it another time, but I did catch my eye with that. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, I would. And I think it's kind of a, a byproduct of everyone on social media screaming into the abyss for attention.
0: Yeah. in um, our algor- it, algorithmic world.
1: Right. Yeah. It's so much harder to try to empathize with somebody when you're seeking attention for yourself.
0: Definitely. And you're not forced to look someone in the eye that too behind a keyboard as well yeah for sure but what i liked about this is when i first heard that it was a bit disheartening but it's not true to say that there's a lack of empathy i think that's an incorrect or at least an incomplete characterization of what's going on because while that study is true there's also the flip side of that coin is that there's an excess of empathy for people like us and i think that kind of ties into the algorithmic world of like where you you know everything's catered to what you believe in and you become in a black hole of what your current held beliefs are and so it's basically saying we're having we have a ton of empathy but it's just for the people like us and so there's we're not allocating that to everybody and it kind of makes sense because it's easier to empathize with those like us than people different and so one quote that i forget now the author's name he's the author of the dark side of empathy but he says in my generation we thought of empathy as the big warm sun lighting the path to peace for us all now it operates like a torch you shine it on your friends and use it to burn your enemies and i thought that was a great characterization and actually i'm trying to remember now that was either him or it was hannah rosen the invisibility host. regardless that what is what's said in it and I, I thought it was wonderful it painted that picture of helped a more complex picture of it's not always good it's not all roses and it's a empathy is kind of a tool like anything else and it's all about how you use it you know, to kind of start to wrap it up, it really got dawned on me and it made me think of like, oh, the, this is a real call for diversity to say to give empathy equally to all things in some ways or to strive to at least and to really focus on um, other people. And it really, the big quote I got was like, I am human and therefore nothing human can be alien to me. Sometimes that's attributed, I think, to Terrence. Other times Maya Angelou, I think she helped re-put it into the popular lexicon. But man, it's one of those quotes that just balls me over every time with the profundity of it because it's saying that the things, the people that you dis- disagree with the most and you maybe despise them or have the hardest time identifying, it's like you, they're still human and they can, they are not alien and that they are as worthy of empathy and connection as you and of trying to put yourself in their shoes. And so overall it's, it was a great thought provoking idea and episode. And I still came out on the side of empathy, but of understanding that there are a lot, it's a lot more diverse and there are considerations to be had, but overall, I'm still, I'm still pro empathy. I would say, what do you think, Colin?
1: The word I think of is nuanced.
0: That's a great, yes, you nailed it.
1: In the podcast, they had a phrase, if I'm remembering correctly, about the weaponization of empathy. Mm. And just what a visual that brings to mind and how it can be used for nefarious means. Even, even though so often we, we only think that empathy can be is, is only a good thing, um, it can also be used for uh, manipulation and influence.
0: Like any tool, it's all how you use it and the way you go about it. When I think with that, the last quote wraps it up nicely. We're both huge David Mitchell fans, and this is from Cloud Atlas. Uh, Colin actually gave me that book as a gift. I still have it with his inscription, and I loved it. And so David Mitchell basically says, Our lives are not our own. We are bound to others, past and present. And by each crime and every kindness, we birth our future.
1: Beautiful. Another thing that we're exploring is some fringe effects of the pandemic. And you know, what kind of brought this about is we're recording this in November right now and lockdown started in March. So we are pretty well versed at this at at this point in time. So I think we're all familiar with like the primary effects of government shutdown and and the virus the health effects the uh, business effects the government spending stimulus whole host of other things but there's a lot of different fringe effects if you will not necessarily in the spotlight but important nonetheless. And so that's what we kind of covered here. So the first one, we have three. And so the first one is relevance. And it's really a lot of people as they're being furloughed, they're being displaced. Um, this is kind of a macro thing that's really been happening slowly as like technology displaces workers and stuff, but the virus has kind of spread, or bed rather, a lot of effects up, this being one of them. And so it's basically some of the employees who were sent home, some who were furloughed, some were who, who were laid off, they're really having to face these existential questions about themselves and the meaning of what they do. In there, we included a Wall Street Journal link to one of their articles in, entitled, As Pandemic Slows Business, worker's fret, is my job relevant? And with something that, you know, you spend so much time doing, if it's, if you're doing this full time, that's roughly 40 hours a week, minimum for a lot of people. And so if you're doing that for that much time, you really kind of internalize that to be part of who you are. And when that gets taken away, what happens? How do you define yourself? How do you categorize your life? Really interesting and not maybe, maybe not the most uplifting, but we're just talking about empathy might be a very important thing to consider when and interacting with a lot of people who might not be in the same uh, situation that you are.
0: Yeah, I think it's extra relevant in America too, because-
1: Wait, are, are, you, are you saying that relevance is relevant in oh, America?
0: I've done that twice. Oh man, I can't help it. I literally did not even mean to do that. I kind of hate myself. <laughs> I think it's extra applicable, is that better? Uh, in America, and I'm probably biased because I'm from, I'm from here and, and know it better, but we here we really value- working hard and that's, there's a good thing to that but like one of the first things people always ask you is what do you do and it's such a big identity and you know I think some other countries may have, have a more of a balance but here it's a big part of who you are and so something like this has forced way more people into this position and like you said to have empathy for them to understand that like this is a, can cause huge existential questions and issues that you maybe hadn't had to contend with before and so yeah it's extra good to be aware and think about this whether it's affecting you or people you know at this time.
1: Yeah, so that's that's the first fringe effect that we kind of look at. the The second one we call nonverbal uh, deprivation, and in this we talk about touch. and You know, can kind of sense listeners tensing up when you when I mentioned that, and probably for good reason, right? It, it's, it hasn't been in the news for um, good reasons lately. Yeah,
0: post Me Too. Fair enough. Yeah.
1: Yep. And for good reason. I mean, what some people had been doing to others is it's abhorrent and they shouldn't be doing that. But to, and I don't think that a lot of people would say this, but to kind of say that all touch is bad is, is incorrect. And in fact, touch is a very, very important nonverbal language. So here we link to an article, really good article in a- Aeon that's entitled, Touch is a Language We Cannot Afford to Forget. And a quote that we inc- included in this says that we lose a lot by depriving ourselves of touch. We deprive ourselves of one of the most sophisticated languages we speak. I thought that was really interesting because it's not really ever portrayed that way as a language, nor is it sophisticated. You know, a lot of times it's crude just in what's common in today's culture and society. But as social creatures, we're not just social with communicating through language, like voice verbally. We also communicate a lot through what we do. A hug can speak volumes, even though you're not actually saying anything.
0: I like that too, because or it's not commonly portrayed that way, but... There's something so spot on about it, I think, because it's a lot of times it's unconscious. Like a lot of times the issues we have are with very conscious predatory ways that touch disease. But we use it all the time without realizing it. And it's almost automatic and it's almost instinctual in that way. And I think in that way, it's they're supremely right in saying like it's one of the most sophisticated languages because we're not even aware of that. And we do it our natural thing when we comfort people or reassure or that kind of things where it's so common that we don't even recognize it but it has such a profound impact and with it's i think like once we're deprived of it is when you really notice that and see so, yeah, i i loved that quote because i at first i wasn't sure about it and then the more it got me thinking deeper and i yeah i think it's spot on makes it more nuanced makes touch a little bit more nuanced if you will
1: for sure so that's the second part or the second fringe effect that we cover And the third and final one is time and memory and so basically it's uh you know, time, the passage of time is affected, like in physical terms by velocity and mass and stuff. And that's not what they're talking about here. It's our perception of time, how fast time is moving through our eyes. Um, And that's influenced by what we're doing, and really where we're doing it, and the changes in both of those factors. So if you're reading a book in the same spot, that is different than reading a book in like a coffee shop and then at the office and then in your bed at home. Um, so even though what you're doing is staying the same, where you're doing it is changing and vice versa. If you're uh, in one spot and you do a whole bunch of different tasks, then that changes your in, your perception of how time is actually passing. It's a really interesting article in the Financial Times that we link to. Uh, it's entitled, We Won't Remember Much of What We Did in the Pandemic. And so what he's talking about there is, you know, with the pandemic, it's not like we're going to coffee shops all the time. We're not going to a bunch of restaurants. A lot of us aren't going into work. People are getting cabin fever kind of from just staying at home all the time. And a side effect of that is you feel like time is going by a lot slower. And it's just because you are at the same place and you're kind of doing the same things over and over again. So we included a a few quotes here too that were in the article. One concept that I like that he uses is, is um, taken from uh, videography, and he says they're called diffs, basically where you need differentiations between what's happening. And if you have enough diffs, then your brain, uh, it, it really activates your brain. If you don't have enough, then it, it's a lot harder for your brain to categorize and archive things that are happening, happening and forming them into memories. Whole whole bunch of other interesting concepts and stuff in there. Pretty basic, so don't have to really sit down and focus too hard to get through it. But fascinating nonetheless.
0: With that, should we move on to what we're reading? Perfect. Great. So this month we talked about three different books. Uh, the first two are provided by none other than Colin Wheeler. The Colin Wheeler. Uh, the first one is Thank You for Arguing by Jane. Uh, wow, Jay Heinrichs. And the second one is the battle Wow, I can't speak. The second one is The Better Angels of Our Nature by Steven Pinker. Uh, And then my contribution is Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, written by Frederick Douglass. Uh, And on there, we included a quote. You know, Colin and I both love to read. So we included a quote that I really like. The reading of all good books is like conversation with the finest people of the past centuries, which feels extra relevant with Frederick Douglass, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, yeah, the authors in my books are still alive.
0: Psh, amateur, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs>
1: <laughs> not as sophisticated as you.
0: <laughs> Lies.
1: All right, so I'll start us off. We'll be we'll be going through the books in that order. So, thank you for arguing. Is a really good book on rhetoric. It's not dry at all. The author does a really good job of being witty, making it interesting and using examples of rhetoric from all walks of life from the ancient Greeks and Romans to Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, even to Homer Simpson. So very wide ranging and applicable uh, content that he uses. And interesting, I I learned that a whole bunch of schools actually use this book, like as a textbook to help with teaching. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: I didn't know that. Cool.
1: Yeah. Didn't really either until I was doing some more research on it. So basically, what this book is about is rhetoric, and what rhetoric is it's it's a way to persuade through argument. And right off the bat, Jay Heinrichs talks about argument, and he acknowledges that you know a lot of people when they hear argument they think bad things. You know, it has a negative connotation, makes you think of like conflict and stuff like that. But that's not what argument used to. Mean that really the definition of it has morphed over time to what we understand as now to be like conflict, but what it used to be was actually just communicating with people and beneficial communication. You're trying to make a point. You're trying to understand them. You're exploring. You're uh, making claims, um, and it's helping you think through your beliefs or whatever claim you're you're making in a logical and rational way to really understand the heart of what it is that you're arguing for in order for you to argue in its favor more effectively.
0: Well, and so, can I, I just say, the, the, sorry, I didn't uh-huh. mean to interrupt, but the word I no, always, the word I think of when you talk about it as like beneficial is like constructive or it gets a negative, mm-hmm. such, it gets such a negative connotation now, but like, you know, history of argument is like, it's meant to be constructive to both sides and to further explore, as you said.
1: Yeah. And actually I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because it makes me think of a uh, part in the book I think it's towards the beginning where he says that a lot of people think that couples get divorced because they argue a lot. Well, couples that stay together argue a lot too. And the difference is is that the the ones who don't stay together are arguing just for argument's sake. Uh, they're not trying to f- come to a consensus, uh, which is what the the latter do the the couples that are still together. So kind of kind of interesting how you can apply that to a whole host of other things, but I'm, I'm thinking purely like more strategy and politics and stuff like that, how the ones that can actually get stuff done are the ones that are arguing to come to a consensus rather than the ones who are just arguing to be right. Those are the ones that are usually stuck in gridlock and don't get things done. So we included some quotes here, and I won't go through all of them, but there, there are some that are really good. And I think so... Jay Heinrichs, I I agree with him. He laments that rhetoric isn't really taught that much in school anymore, really, if at all. And he he says, what happened is that we lost the ability to argue. Rhetoric once formed the core of education, especially in colleges. It died out in the 1800s when the classics in in general lost their popularity and when even academia forgot what the liberal arts were for. And then there's another one where he's distilling some strategy for rhetoric. If you're trying to change somebody's mood, tell a story, which I think is really good for just the way that human brains have evolved over time. Through we have to have a narrative for things.
0: Mm-hmm. No doubt. It's how we remember, especially before we mm-hmm. had writing and other things. Right. All all yep. Traditions. Yep.
1: Yeah. So to kind of wrap this up, the next steps, I didn't, didn't really have a lot of qu- uh, thoughts and questions. And thought is just I I wish that it was taught more too. And I think it's super, super important to have actual populace who's actually good at conversing with each other effectively, especially when you're in a democracy. Yeah. But so this this was a good book and if you're interested in rhetoric, which I think that you should be because of how important it is, there's a whole bunch of other books that we included in here that are good readings. We've read some of them, although not all. Uh, one being The Art of re- Rhetoric, which is a classic, and it's by the man himself, Aristotle. And if that kind of raises a flag for you, there are reprints of it in more modern language. So um, there are other options for you than rather than just the the old verbiage that he and his uh, colleagues used.
0: That's a great pro tip. Anytime you're listening to yeah. something that's been translated... <laughs> especially if you just go to the library for it, like look at who translated it at what year same thing like meditations by marcus realis like usually in good is like unless you love old language like get the newest tra- a newer translation for anything you want like that and it might make a world of difference and make it much more digestible sorry that's an aside but i was way too old to find that out when i did and when i did i was like oh this is great
1: no it's so- a great point
0: <laughs> you brought because it
1: up because i I mean, the point of this is to to learn it, and so what's the point of slogging through some uh information that you you it, it just takes so much effort to to even understand a sentence
0: mm-hmm.
1: you're not going to get through it, so you it behoove you a lot more to get something that you can actually read through and understand
0: for sure
1: there's also websites that we included um in praise of argument is a good one. Jay Heinrichs himself has a blog and I, I believe in praise of argument he helps curate some of that material as well. Silva gosh, I'm gonna mess up this pronunciation. Rhetorica something. It basically means argument through uh in the forest or something like that. Double check me.
0: <laughs> also there's a great quote that says like never make fun of someone for mispronouncing a word that means they read it in a book. And I first time I heard that I was like, that's great because it's true if you it's not an audiobook. If you actually read it in the book, it's like, yeah.
1: I'm going to use that all the time now.
0: Isn't it great? And then you feel better about yeah. yourself when you mispronounce something. You're like, oh, this is <laughs> a great blanket statement to just have in your back pocket whenever you need it.
1: Mm-hmm. Perfect. I'm adding it. And then if, you, if you're not a big reader or if reading about rhetoric sounds boring or, or time intensive, rhetoric is everywhere. And uh, TV shows and podcasts and stuff have it, too. And so we've included some of the ones that do it a little bit more skillfully than others, and a little bit more densely too. So there's a whole host of rhetorical devices in, in these, whereas some others, and you might only get like a handful in an entire episode, where, whereas you get these in rapid succession. So of them, we included Monty Python, The Simpsons, Family Guy, kind of the you know slapstick, satirical comedy that you would expect. George Carlin, late comedian, was also a master of words and used a whole host of rhetorical devices in a whole bunch of his stand-up. A lot of his stand-up would be really good too. Um, and then there's movies too that are slapstick in nature. Those those slapstick ones kind of use a lot of rhetorical devices to make fun of society as we know it or certain societal norms. And so we include the *Airplane* there, but there's a whole bunch of other ones too. And then if you want to go old school, a lot of the comic books or comics have them. So like Calvin Calvin and Hobbes, Garfield, Dilbert, pretty dense with rhetorical devices as well. So lots of different options for exploring the world of rhetoric, which is a very, very interesting world.
0: Yeah. And we loved, while you're, re- I feel like I've read this book. I've not, but while Colin was reading it, we talked about it a lot. And had it was kind of like right up our alley because we just he had a lot of great points. And like we we talk a lot about we're trying to improve thinking and a lot with mental models and biases and other things. With that, you you can think wonderful thoughts, but if you can't communicate them verbally or written, you know, it's stuck in your brain and it's of no use really to the world and it can be very frustrating. And so we say like, the art of rhetoric, the art of conversing with people and communicating is so important. And this is great because it hits home so much when he laments, because we lament as well, how often it feels like now people cannot argue. And so much of argument is attacking the person rather than the argument, because people just are lacking the skills because it's not being taught uh, as often. And it's such a great skill. No matter what field you're in, it's so useful. And we both find it fascinating and hope to get better at it ourselves, but also for everyone too, because it just makes a better world and we can talk to each other efficiently and effectively.
1: Yep. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more rhetoric, but before this podcast is over,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: but with that, keep moving forward. So the better Angels angels of our nature is the next book. And it's by Steven Pinker and it is a thick book. I think it's like seven or 800 pages, pretty academic in nature, still fairly accessible, tons and tons of data in it, but overall a really good read and basically what he is showing in his data and arguing for is that violence has declined over long stretches of human history. And he uses a lot of data. And e- even though in earlier history, the the data isn't quite what we have today. It's a little bit of apples and oranges. He, he makes fairly decent assumptions and tries to be conservative as possible. But Overall, it, it's a it's a good read. And it's kind of counterintuitive when you think about it, because we're just barraged with information about war, crime, terrorism, a whole bunch of other things that you hear about that include a bunch of violence in the world today. And so you a lot of people think that the world's going to hell in a handbasket. And a lot of those people don't really, it, it seems like they're not big readers of history. And so much of history is laced with violence, whether it's wars or man-made famines or some other form of violence caused by one party and inflicted on another. It really is quite astonishing. Did include a few quotes here, and again, I won't go through all of them, but I'll, I'll just point out a few. So one, I kind of like because I think it it applies to the biases episode that we just recently recorded and again should be live at this the time that you're listening to this but he says in hermetic isolation all kinds of bizarre and toxic ideas can fester sunlight is the best disinfectant and exposing a bad idea to the critical glare of others minds provides at least a chance that it will wither and die and so the way that i tie that into to the biases is that we're all biased we all have biases and it is very difficult for us to spot biased thinking in ourselves, but it's so much easier to spot it in other people. And that's why it's important to have close group of confidants and advisors to like bounce ideas off of and stuff so they can help improve your thinking. And so if you have a certain thought or an idea, then immediately they can look at it through their lens rather than yours and point out some potential biased thinking that you might have. Kind of similar to what this quote is saying too.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of the Brene Brown thing, right, of We talk about feedback a lot and having close confidants. They're there to give you feedback, constructive feedback, right? And it's important because people usually go to the spectrum of like, they either care what everybody thinks or they like, I don't care what anybody thinks. And it's like, well, neither one of those is good, balance of all things. And she always talks about living vulnerably and going into the arena. And when you go into the arena, you're going to get your ass kicked. And she's like, you know, I only care, I don't care about the feedback from the people in the cheap seats. Or she's like, I care, I only care about the people that are in the arena getting their ass kicked with me. Those are the people I care about their feedback. And so this is kind of saying that of like finding people that are fighting the good fight along with you that are willing to be confidants and give you their opinions and things like that
1: yep yeah one so one more quote on this uh i thought it was a good one and ties into uh, biases as well says if the past is a foreign country it is a shockingly violent one it is easy to forget how dangerous life used to be how deeply brutality was once woven into the fabric of daily existence cultural memory pacifies the past leaving us with pale souvenirs whose bloody origins have been bleached away
0: dang that's great
1: yeah basically we we project our experiences of what life is now and yeah we project that in kind of or at least overlay it onto that of the past in history and it i think it's natural to do that because you're you don't know what you don't know. And so you're trying to, you're using what you have to understand something else. So it's natural that this should happen, but should at least be aware that it's happening. Um, so a few things on this book to wrap this up. Since it is long and it is pretty dense, Stephen Pinker did include an FAQ, frequently asked questions about this, on his website. And so we linked to that. He also gave a bunch of interviews and lectures too, and we linked to four interviews and two lectures. I think that they they ranged in like two minutes-ish long to about an hour. Or so pick your poison there. And then there's been a lot of backlash to his uh, data and conclusions too. And not just from, oh, I don't think he's right. There's actually been scientists and statisticians who have uh, challenged it. Kind of ranging from Topics like uh, fat tails and distributions. Not they're claiming he didn't really take that into consideration. Also, time periods. Um, he's not. They're they're claiming that he's not looking at the proper increments of time. But anyways, there are three articles there that those articles link to academic papers and stuff like that for the dissenters' evidence. If you're looking for a straightforward answer, this is not going to be the one for you. It's going <laughs> to take some effort to read it. It's going to take some effort to try to understand it, both from Steven Pinker's perspective, but then also some of the uh, statisticians and historians who are refuting his research and conclusions. But regardless, it is a good way to be thinking about, well, one, just how to, how to think from Steven Pinker himself to how people are refuting it. But then also, it's, it's kind of important to help you keep the present in perspective with what the past was like, too. With that, I think we can move into your book, Jenna.
0: Okay, my book or contribution to the newsletter is Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. And this was written by Frederick Douglass himself. And it's basically where he presents the narrative of his early years into his young adulthood. Uh, He was born into slavery, and you follow him on that journey and his quest for freedom, which he ultimately won, and then published this book at great peril to himself. And really, this book's on a lot of lists of things everyone should read and books to read before you die. And I, um, it's always nice when you read these books and they live up to the hype because I completely, I thought this book was wonderful. I think it's a short knockout of a book and that every, it should be required reading in America or I think actually everywhere. Cause there's all types of slavery everywhere. And there's just so much timeless wisdom that he has. And it, it really is. This book is a brilliant and methodical takedown of the institution of slavery. It's plain and simple. And I think it strikes a perfect balance of presenting the facts and ideas and um the argument against slavery and of what happened to him in a straightforward manner but it also he infuses the narrative with all the relevant emotion that the topic requires because he went through so much but it, he doesn't sugarcoat the trauma or anything like that but you can tell he's processed it and he's thinking about it logically so it kind of strikes the perfect balance of of the more logical reasoning side and emotion together and so it it's really great so the big thing that struck one thing that really struck me when I read this book um that really it kind of bowled me over when I read it is on his quest to becoming free he learned to read it started with his master he, his master had just gotten married and the woman didn't know the ways yet and so she started teaching him the alphabet and his master got livid because all the slave owners knew they knew that the last the last thing that they wanted their slaves to do was learn how to read it was the most dangerous thing because then they could learn to read and write and share ideas and really understand the bondage they were in and try to free themselves more from it. But he had already gotten the bug. And so he ended up going down, I think it was to appear, but he tricked these white boys uh, into teaching him letters until he knew the whole alphabet. And then he taught himself to read and he worked so hard for it and learned. And then eventually as a young man started to teach other slaves and other slave children that wanted to, at great peril to himself or other, or the, you know, and with great peril to himself and those there, because they got caught they could have been whipped or much worse. That just stop me in my tracks because he, think if you think of especially in America here in America at least and I bet a lot of places how much we take for granted the right to read like now people uh, complain and we're all guilty different degrees I think if we've been lucky to go to school to bitch and moan about it and to think of it as something a drudgery and it's something difficult where he fought, he fought so hard for the right for that that reading is so powerful and it opens up so many avenues and imagine if people read this and we talked about reading and writing that way in a bunch of Imagine a whole generation looking at it that way instead of that's something you have to do. Like what a gift and a right to do and how many people through history weren't afforded that right and didn't fight for that. And it, it kind of hit me where how much I take that for granted. And I think so many others do because you just get, you get used to it. Where a lot of our society is literate and that you don't realize like what a gift that is and a profound one too. So that one really struck me. And with that, I'll go on to my favorite quotes on the newsletter. I only included two because a lot of his quotes deserve to be read in full full paragraph forms, not short ones, but I'm going to only read one of them. And this one I think really hit me the most and it really kind of sums up the book well and got me thinking and uh, ties into the next steps. So here we go. Quote, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one or it may be a physical one. And it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without demand. It never did, and it never will. Men may not get all they pay for in this world, but they must certainly pay for all they get." Letting that sink in. The sentiment is, where there's no struggle, there can be no progress. And I think it's so simple, yet profoundly true and timeless. With that, it led me to another related question that I, I am still trying to answer. And that question is, what is worth struggling for in this life? And I think that's one of the biggest questions. And because it's such a big one, I think there no, there are no quick and easy answers to that question. And if they are, then they're not the real answer. And, and I find this happens a lot in my life. The big questions, the profound ones hitting at the ultimate truths and answers. I always say it's like, you know, with those questions, there is no Capital A answer or capital T truth about them. There might be little ones that hint towards it, but I think questions like that, I think this question rather is a question that one could spend a lifetime trying to answer. and that it it's worthy of that. It's a question worthy of a lifetime of struggle. So I'll take the challenge, and hopefully I think Colin will too, and all of you, uh, you know, if you're listening to this, to leave here thinking, to really start pondering and living out that question, and struggling through the question of what is worth struggling for in this life.
1: So I think that we'll we'll move into the last part of this newsletter, which is uh, what we're thinking. And it's about how to deal with bullies, specifically using rhetoric. And so first off, we should start by classifying the different types of bullies. There's a whole host of different types. And so the ones that resort to violence, unless you can really persuade them not to be violent with you, there's not a way to, to win against them with rhetoric. That's really the only way. So this isn't really intended to be that type. It's, this is more covering the heckler type of bully, the the political bully, the verbal bully. And so the way that we do this is actually outlined, was outlined over two millennia ago by Socrates. And so he, he has two different tactics. The first one he calls ironic love. And Jay Heinrichson in the book, thank you for arguing that we covered earlier the first book, he talks about this in the book and he uses a comedian for that type. So it's pretty easy to think of a comedian or some kind of performer on stage and you have a heckler. And so the way that they can sometimes deal with them is through ironic love where they're you're pretending deep affection with just a little bit of pity. And so if you have like a heckler or something a lot of times comedian will say well actually like engage them they won't call for security to throw them out or anything like that instead they'll engage them say what do you do for a living and stuff like that and then slowly start to win over the audience and a lot of it it doesn't take long to search youtube or something for to see this in action the only problem with this is that sometimes whenever you're not in that situation even though you were the party that was wronged you can appear kind of immature sometimes depending on on the audience and the situation that you're in. And so another way, and arguably a better way, is called aggressive interest. So basically to do this, you're feigning sympathetic curiosity while continually asking for definitions, details, and sources. And so even though you're feigning sympathetic curiosity, you're not doing it in a sarcastic way. You're pretending, but you're acting to where it looks like you're actually curious about a topic. And so by doing this, you're, you're asking questions. You're not actually making an argument or anything. You're just asking the questions. You are keeping the burden of proof off of you and on the other party. And so an example of this is if somebody makes a questionable statement, and if you choose to engage, uh, the first thing that you should ask them is to define their terms. In the book, the example that Jay Heinrichs uses is if, they, if you're at Thanksgiving dinner And you have an Uncle Bertie, and he says, just out of the blue, apparently, I still think we should build that wall with Mexico and make the Mexicans pay for it. So everybody's getting really uncomfortable. And so what you do is you ask him to define his terms. Start with a definition, one of the mental models that we linked to it, the newsletter. He says, tell me about that wall. Uncle Bertie, what do you mean by a wall? And so then Bertie tells him about the wall. So, So that's the definitions part. So then you move on to the details. So if we're following the example in the book, he says... Would the wall be across the whole border? That would be amazing. Is there not a wall there now? And so then you get Uncle Bertie talking about, well, there is a wall in some spots, but not all of it. And it's kind of porous. And then you're asking more details about geography and land ownership and stuff like that. So you're not ever saying, well, that's impossible because this would cost a ton of money and stuff like that. You are keeping the burden of proof on them. They have to work their way through that argument. And it's just through you asking questions. So basically, that's that's it in a nutshell. It's important to remember in rhetoric, you win in rhetoric by persuading your audience if your audience comes over to your side of understanding. And part of that is defining who your audience is. Sometimes your audience would be Uncle Bertie in the case of the book. But then probably more likely, if we're still following the example in the book, the audience would be the rest of the family. You're probably not going to persuade your uncle just by asking him all of these questions. You might moderate his viewpoint points. That that actually is a side effect of what happens when the details of an argument are actually brought to the forefront. People don't hold their viewpoint as strongly. They, they understand, oh, there's a lot of gray area here. I need to learn a lot more about it. Not always, obviously. I can picture a lot of people thinking of scenarios where that doesn't happen. Yeah, it doesn't happen all the time. But for the rest of the people at the table, if they are your audience, you're probably showcasing that Uncle Birdie hasn't really thought this through very well. So that provides persuasion to your side of the argument. So that's kind of how to one or two ways rather, to, to use rhetoric to deal with bullies. First one is ironic love. It's really easy. You're a bit sarcastic. You pity them, and you kind of show that a little bit. You, you show interest like they're beneath you, which can work. But like I said, you, you can appear kind of immature. And then the other one is aggressive interest, where you're using definitions, details, and sources. You're asking for those, so that you're keeping the burden on the other party to actually provide evidence.
0: I think with ironic love, like you were talking about, I think aggressive interest works better because you have to have a very specific skill set to do ironic love. It's like comedians are usually the ones that have it the best because when someone's great at it, it works wonderfully and it's very funny and it really can work, but you have to be a master at that and most people aren't. And so a better strategy, especially overall, is aggressive interest. And with that too, exactly when you talk about like feigned sympathetic curiosity, when you spoke about that, I like that because it's like... I think depending on how violent, and I don't mean physically, but how violent your bully is and how aggressive they are, right? If they're more tame, hopefully that leads to empathy, right? But if they're—if you're pretty sure they're completely wrong, it's like you should always have openness and try to be as genuine as you can. But yeah, I think ideally, right, you might have to feign sympathetic curiosity, but hopefully depending how moderate, and how aggressive they are, you can maybe even get that to empathetic if it makes sense, you know, of that. But it's, it's a brilliant strategy. Like we talk about, it's good to argue, but no one ever did something because you told them to we don't like it when we give or that misconception of like, we like orders. You no. Know, Cause like when you actually order someone to do something, like you have to do this, we go, no, we don't. It's much better to put the ball in their court, the burden of proof on them, as you said. And hopefully if, if anything, it'll at least moderate their views. And sometimes you can completely transform because it, it makes them think they've thought of it much more than you forcing them to do it. So overall, yeah, I love this. I think it's really useful.
1: Yep. Jenna, I don't think I have anything else that kind of gets us to the end of the newsletter can you think of anything that we're forgetting or to wrap up
0: that last line's pretty great where it says in the end quote love even feigned rhetorical love conquers all it's quite great look very cheeky and wonderful so great well with that thank you so much for listening to our episode going over our second newsletter from november 2020 and if you enjoyed this please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We're there. And as always, you can check us out at palladianpark.com. There you can sign up for our newsletter and see more about our learning services, also about our consulting services and anything else you want to know. So with that, thank you so much for listening. And I think we're out.